Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey, kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, but we can make them better than they were before. Better. Stronger. It's comics. And here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And welcome. Have you done that for a while? And welcome back to Hey Kids Comics. What number of special is this? I don't know. I have you lost track? I have. Okay, okay. fair enough. Uh, this is the penultimate special mm-hmm. for this particular run. One more. This is the straight to video run. Because yeah, that's what penultimate means. No, no, this is, yeah. <laughs> this is the straight to video series. Mm. Next year we have straight to laser disc. Who listens to laser discs? You watch them. Who still watches laser discs? You don't, so that, that will be our least successful <laughs> year for podcasts. <laughs> Alright, we're trying to bring back a defunct yeah, format. Yeah, the year is after that, that right, it'll be straight right, to DVD. Okay, right, fair enough. Oh dear me! Anyway, so, so tonight we've uh, we felt we've give Jim Lee a bit of a kick in of late. You're right, and um, I felt we were being a little bit unfair to the guy because he, he he noticed. Well, he was quite upset about us. He does get very upset when we say stuff like that to him when he's looking at his bank account. Yeah, that's true. And uh, he looks at that bank account, but it cannot fill the empty hole inside his breast. That we've were, created. That we've created, <laughs> yes. That we've dug that hole. And he looks at that millions upon millions upon millions of dollars that he has in the uh, in yeah. the bank account. Millions, and he goes, really? I think so, you yeah. You get millions from drawing comics. We sold Wildstorm to DC. That, that must have been a healthy chunk of change. Maybe I really am in the right, plus right job. Plus, X-Men sold a million plus copies. Right. So, assume he only made a dollar a book, if mm. that, from his sales. That's still a millionaire, isn't he? Before, yeah. even, before he even went to Image. Hmm. So, and he commands top dollar for his commissions if he does any. Yeah. Stuff like that. So I would imagine he's one of the higher earners. But that is as nothing <laughs> when he looks and listens to this show and he hears us bitch and moan about him. And he weeps. Yeah. He weeps into his shredded wheat. God, Jim, delayed comics. I can't help when my child's being born. <laughs> well, Jim, you kind of can. <laughs> You know, they give you a due date when you're at the hospital. Sorry, honey, we can't conceive tonight. I've got a deadline in nine months. And Andy and Michael will not like me being late. <laughs> so he cries into his shredded wheat every morning. So we're going to throw... Does it take him nine months to do a comic? <laughs> Just the one? Now, now. This is our be nice to Jim Lee episode. I feel like we should get that out of our system before we kick him proper. I'm not going to kick him tonight, I don't think. I think I'm saying... Kick in. Oh, right. We're going to say horrible things and then kick him while he's down. I think think we've already done that on many occasions. (laughs) All right, okay, fair enough. Tonight, though, we're going to be nice to Jim Lee. And we're going to look at his earlier work on Punisher War Journal and the Uncanny X-Men. It'll be very exciting. Mm-hmm. I think. Okay. But before we do that, I'll kill that bloody midgy stone dead. 
crushed it between my own hands. You know what I was like then? Mr. Miyagi with the chopsticks. When you can do it with the chopsticks, I'll be impressed. <laughs> I did it with my hands. Does that not count? Kill that damn fly with these burr hands. These hands are a weapon. Your hands are a bit bigger than the chopsticks. It's a little bit, I'll give you that. But I am like unto a thing of iron. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Is that not a porn star slogan? Unto the thing of like iron. Like unto a thing of iron. <laughs> I can make mine harder than iron. Yeah. Anyway, moving swiftly on and away from the uncomfortable topic that Michael does not like. We will have a look in the email sack. Let us dig through the email bag. Dig through the sack with our iron hands. Oh, feel all that lovely email. And the lovely email consists of two. Count them, two (laughs) emails. Uh, The first one's from the lovely Luke Giaconetti. Some say that we've not done this bit for some considerable time. And that he doesn't perhaps approve of the new hosts. <laughs> All we know is he's called Luke Giaconetta. And Luke has emailed in about the Darwin Cook tribute, which was um, special number 304, I think. Right, okay. This is number 805. Okay. We've, we've, we number them in the same way that Doctor Who seems to edge. Right. One minute he's 790, the next thing he's 904. And then suddenly he's 1,200 in the space of a few episodes and a regeneration. See, I was thinking it's been a long summer, but not that long. No, but it's it's been a good summer in terms of banking these specials. I suppose, yeah. Luke says, Silver Age Andy and the iconic Michael. I like being Silver Age. I like being iconic. Do you? Do you think you're iconic? Oh, I'm very iconic. I think you're iconic. At the moment, you're looking your most iconic. Am I? Yeah, the hair's not too long, okay. but it's long enough to, to sum up the, the essence of Michael. I am at the, the peak of iconicness. Yeah, the beard, the beard's stubble, but a little bit more stubble than no, Indiana Jones. The beard's getting a bit too Yeah, too you're much almost now. soul patches, but not quite. Yeah. So yeah. you're not quite in the, in the <laughs> let's shave that soul patch off. You've got a band t-shirt on yeah. and jeans. That's older than me. The, the band t- yes, a band t-shirt that is older than you. Mm. Yes. And um, uh, a pair of jeans. So you're kind of the iconic Michael. All you need is your jacket on. I do, yeah. And, and you're, it's you're, a bit warm inside. You're the, the ultimate of iconic appeal. <laughs> I am the epitome of podcast the, coolness. <laughs> you are the epitome of iconic podcast cool. Mm. If podcast had a cool rating, which I don't think it does. But if it did... <laughs> the inverse. Let's not forget that. <laughs> <laughs> if it did... Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, Darwin Cook's... No, he doesn't. Luke Jackanetti says not Darwin Cook, unfortunately. Hey, fellas, just a quick email for real this time. To let you know that I very much enjoyed your Darwin Cook tribute episode. I was not familiar with the kryptonite story that you covered, but now I feel that I have to track it down. Obviously, I was taken aback and saddened by the death of Cook much too soon, of course. I met him one time at Heroes Con in Charlotte, North Carolina, back in 2008. Cook was the headliner guest, and he did the artwork for the show's Advance Order Incentive poster as seen here and Luke has of course provided us with a link for the heroes online oh look at it that's actually quite did they use that as the new frontier cover they did I thought they did so that ultimately Luke went on to be is it your new frontier yeah the deluxe edition yeah so not the absolute edition that doesn't have an issue in it but I now have that issue both digitally and in print yes just thought I'd mention that so yeah that is a stunning piece of artwork as usual from Mr. Cook Wonder Woman with a big cheesy grin on her face, which is what we like to see. At the time, I did not own nor had even read New Frontier, but I was a huge fan of his artwork nonetheless. I had him sign the poster, which now hangs in a place of prominence in the room with the rest of my comics and crap. 
What an amusing story. Kirk was a bit of a Luddite, and he did not particularly like technology, to the point that some of his fellow DCers accused him of essentially distrusting technology. At the Charlotte Convention Center, you have to take an escalator down from the ground level to the main hall. My friend Adam and I were taking the escalator down, and someone asked if he could get past us. It was Cook. Now we graciously let him pass, but both immediately had the same thought. We could have just kept stepping backwards and trapped Cook on the escalator. Now, now, Mr. Cook, I think a full sketch each would be enough to let you pass, don't you agree? The other Cook story I wanted to share deals again with technology. My brother is tight with a pair of creators who have done a lot of work for DC as a team. They told the story of being out in San Diego when the New Frontier film had just been released, and at the big DC Comics dinner that year showing off to Cook that they had the movie on their phone. This apparently utterly freaked Cook out. How can the movie be on your phone? It's a movie! The industry lost a very talented and passionate creator with the death of Darwin Cook, and I'm sad we will never see his work again, but glad that the work he created will endure forever. And that pretty much sums up what we felt about it, wasn't yeah. it? So. One of the best things about him, though, is how everyone has a story about him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was one of those guys, wasn't he? Yeah. He was, he's kind of almost 60s cool. Mm. 40 years too late. Because he was, wasn't he? He was. He was, he was a very cool guy. Next email, uh, final email for tonight, Bronze Age Team-Ups episode, Tom Panneris, the mighty Tom Panneris, he's wearing a Greatest American Area t-shirt <laughs> in his little picture there, can you see that? I can't. Leave it or not, I'm walking on air, never thought I could feel so free. You're not joining in? It doesn't take anything for a musical interview, <laughs> does it? I am a musical episode, dude. Sometimes I'm amazed. <laughs> Uh, what? Uh, at the things that'll just trigger it. Well, just on the show or just in, in life? <laughs> just in general. Yeah. <laughs> I want to be in a musical of my life. <laughs> That's what it is. And songs just appear and right, show up right. at random. And yeah. lyrically, they will get altered and tweaked slightly. I you even like, have your own ambience music in your head when you're walking around <laughs> while you're working. Like Bod. <laughs> you don't remember Bod. When I was a kid, there was a show called Bod. Right. And he was this little bald guy. And everyone on the show had a theme tune. Right. So Bod was... Okay. And PC Copper was... And Aunt Flo had music as well, but I don't remember that, because if she right. was on the flow, we don't really want to know. Okay. Okay. But Bod was a great show. Look it up on YouTube. Okay. Look it up on YouTube, lovely listener. Uh, ben Rush will know what I'm talking about, because right. he's roughly the same age as me. But Bod was brilliant. I love Bod. Dave Walker may be a bit young. Okay. Bod. <laughs> you keep saying <laughs> well that's what the show did every time it said a name the theme played okay. you know like that family guy spoof where he wanted his own theme tune yeah. Bod was that that's right, what Bod okay. was PC Copper it's brilliant show love Bod anyway speaking of other people that are great and lovely uh, hello Leyland hello Tom Panarese Just a few weeks behind with my listening and emailing, but wanted to let you guys know that the two DC stories you featured in your bronze team-up episodes were early classics. I started collecting comics long after both The Brave and the Bold and DC Comics Presents were cancelled, but I always came across various issues in reprints and trade paperback collections, and while they tended to be a mixed bag overall, you guys grabbed two of the best. The OMAX story actually was reprinted at one point, When DC was doing its weekly Countdown to Final Crisis series, the less said about which the better, they did 80-page giant reprints of stories featuring key characters from the Countdown title. One of these was OMAC, and I remember flipping through it in the comic store and specifically buying it because of the George Perez art in the reprinted DCCP issue. It's a good story. 
I've also heard good things about the John Byrne Prestige format miniseries from the early 90s, and I will pick that up if I ever see it on the cheap. That DC Comics Presents was also printed in the Best of Digest blue ribbon pocketbook thing as well, because when I was looking it up after we'd recorded the episode, because that's when you do your research after the episode has been recorded. I spotted that it had been reprinted there as well. I don't know how easy it is to get hold of, but that's an awesome issue. The John Byrne OMAC Minute, um, I constantly see that for dirt cheap, so it shouldn't be that hard to to pick it up. I've only read it once, so I don't actually remember, but the art's lovely. The art's black and white and zipper tone. Yeah. So it's really quite cool. Tom continues, the Batman story is one that I've loved from my very first days of reading Batman comics because the greatest Batman stories ever told collection was my gateway to the Dark Knight. While at the time I first read it, I didn't understand the whole Earth 2 concept and wasn't entirely sure what happened to Robin, Batwoman, et al. during the story and what happened to the Scarecrow. It didn't matter because the story was just that good. I always found it a bit of a shame that while the Brave and the Bold was cancelled to make way for Batman and the Outsiders, it did at least get a proper send-off with issue 200. DC Comics Presents send-off was with a pre-crisis Phantom Zone villain story. That issue came out the same month as whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow, but I suppose that fits in with those other issues in a thematic sense, and I suppose I can't be as bad as that really awful last issue of World's Finest. Anyway, thank you, as always, for a great show. Good to hear both of you, even if it's not on a weekly basis. All the best. Tom. Well, thank you very much, Tom. And Tom is of this here parish, the Two True Freaks parish, where he hosts the Pop Culture Affidavit podcast and, in country, the Nam podcast. And I remember both of them off the top of my head. You did. Because Tom, Tom, lazy old Tom, did not mention that in his email anywhere. And I had to remember to plug his show. It's always inconsiderate. It's damned inconsiderate of it, because you know my memory sucks. (laughs) Who are you? Yeah. Which child are you again? <laughs> the first. Oh, yeah? The no. first and best. <laughs> okay, fair the enough. The second after the one we keep in the attic. <laughs> oh, I'm not supposed to speak of it. You are not supposed to mention the one that we keep in the attic. No, that's very true. Anyway, that's the email sack. Well and truly drained. Yeah. So we will be back after these commercial messages um, with uh, Jim Lee. Be nice to Jim Lee episode. That's what we're doing, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, Jim Lee, you're lovely. We're very nice to you this week, Jim. <laughs> Honest. Anyway, we'll be right back. Now I've made Michael uncomfortable. Xenophiles. A fan podcast devoted to the comic series Xenozoic Tales. It's a post-apocalyptic adventure series filled with Cadillacs and dinosaurs. I'm Ruth. And I'm Darren. We hope you'll join us as we discuss the stories, characters, and art in this excellent comic series from creator, writer, and artist Mark Schultz. Xenozoic Xenophiles is available at podbean.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. And find us at xenozoicxenophiles.com. It seems to me that we've been less than kind to Jim Lee in recent months, mocking his terminal lateness and his habit of putting pointless lines all over his newly designed costumes. But there was a time when Lee was an up-and-coming artist and a name to watch. 
Starting at Marvel on a very much past its prime Alpha Flight in 1987, Lee's clean and stylized art was spotted by editor Don Daly. Daly quickly tapped Lee to draw Punisher War Journal, a brand new title in Marvel's new format. New format books cost a little more due to the paper stock, but it enhanced the art greatly. Punisher War Journal was where I first met Jim Lee. I remember picking up issue one when it came out and I was suitably impressed by Lee's art. It had a sheen to it, sure, but Lee couldn't hide behind speed lines or skin-tight suits in this Punisher book. And this is probably the reason I cared about Jim Lee when Image started, even though I had little interest in his other work. It's hard to imagine now, but when Punisher War Journal issue one came out in the summer of 1988, Lee only had a handful of issues of the aforementioned Alpha Flight and an issue of Solo Avengers to his credit. By 1991, he would be Mr. X-Men and one of the biggest superstars in comics, arguably a position he's maintained for over 25 years. Do you remember first meeting Mr. Jim Lee? No, I've not met him yet. You know what I mean, his yes. art. Uh, probably, um, knowingly, Batman Hush. Unknowingly, that X-Men annual. Yes, because we'll talk about this later, but this is your X-Men annual, isn't yeah. it? So the first time you noticed, because you, when we started this show... Right. All those as years ago. ago. Yes, those, those decades ago when you were still a teenager. And I was like this. Yes. And then you said it's all right a lot. I did. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um You were a big G- Jim Lee booster. Was I? Yeah, you were a big fan of Jim Lee back in the early days. Mm. Are you still? Yes. I think, no. yeah, I think. No, I, I like him and I'll read stuff he's doing. I just, he's, he's been on a gradual decline for a few years. Okay, why do you think that? He just has. His quality of art. You noticed it too when you started rereading Justice League. I did, actually. Read Hush, then read Justice League. Yeah. Different man. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, the issue of Punisher War Journal that we've picked for the show is issue number eight. The first done-in-one issue of the run that came out in September of 1989. With a cover by Mr. Lee and Klaus Janssen. The Punisher stands atop a New York cornerstone as the city that never sleep twinkles in the background. This looks suspiciously to me like Janssen did the backgrounds and Lee the main figure. The purple sky is odd, but it's an eye-catching cover. I quite like it. What do you think? It's moody. Yeah, it's a moody Punisher cover. But it... He's see this Punisher is quite funny to me because he's the, the talks a lot. He's the super anti-action hero Punisher, isn't he? Why? With his big guns and his gadgets. Oh right, you mean he's very much in the mould of eighties action movies? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, I get what you're saying. The Punisher in Escape from L.A. <laughs> the, but it's very much prototype Lee. Yeah. The guns are there. I have no idea what that one is in his left hand. At least the other one's a recognisable weapon. Mm. The pouches are there, yeah. but not ridiculous because they're actually a pouched belt, which he would later adopt for Batman. I do, I do like how um, he's, he's, the teeth on his skull aren't pouches, but they're still part of his belt. But they're still part of the belt, yeah. Is he wearing a headband? It or, looks like it. Or is it a bandage? It's it's a bandage that he doesn't need to wear, so he wears it as a, ba- uh, a headband. Because he wears a bandage in the in the comic around his head. I presume that's that's just a throwback to the previous issue where he fought dinosaurs. <laughs> okay. But it, it does it does end up giving him that he's wearing a bandana. Yeah. Kind yeah. of which adds into your whole eighties action movie vibe, doesn't yeah. it? This is this is the Punisher via Rambo. It, it goes with his very styled hair. It does. Well Jim Lee likes his, his slicked hair, doesn't he? he does. Which was not out of place in the eighties and nineties. Mm-hmm. Not so much now. 
No. But back then, for for fair play to the man. I like that cover. I still do think there's there's a there's more of a Jansen vibe to the background than the main figure. Well, there's more of a Jansen vibe throughout the issue. Well, Klaus Jansen didn't hit the issue, did he? Did he not? No, Jim Lee. This is all Jim Lee. Because it looks pretty much in certain places, it looks like a, a clone of either Frank Miller or John Junior. Uh, Jim Lee. Okay. Isn't isn't that what Jim Lee kind of was in the early days? Is that what he started as? I think so. I think he's very... Well, like everyone is influenced by Frank Miller. Just look at that page and look at the faces, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I don't disagree with you, but this is Jim Lee all the way, which is why I picked it. Right. This okay. is Jim Lee without Scott Williams. Right. Which is, is very unusual. And the, the X-Men issue we're going to cover later, Scott Williams is firmly in place. Yes. So it, it was... The point was me to try and pick one that wasn't Lee as he is now. I wanted very much to look at his... But as he was, yeah. So it was written by Carl Potts. The art in this one was all Jim Lee. There was no inker. So Jim Lee penciled and inked this issue. Um, And he kept a reasonably tight schedule on this book. Mm. I think he did something like the first 12 issues, but then he had four issues off, and then he came back for four issues, by which point he was Mr. X-Men. Right. So he wasn't bothered with him with the Punisher book anymore. I wonder how different his career would have been if he'd stuck with the Punisher as the Punisher made it huge in the late 80s, early 90s, mm. would Jim Lee's wagon have been hitched to the Punisher bandwagon rather than the X-Men bandwagon? And would that have made any difference to comics as a whole had he stuck with the Punisher instead of doing the X-Men? Mm. I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. I just thought it would be uh, interesting to ponder. Evidently not. <laughs> uh, synopsis. Uh, local gang are terrorising a neighbourhood into silence while simultaneously running a drugs operation. Local people local people, <laughs> have started to stick up for themselves, resulting in the death of a shopkeeper, a young mother and her baby, and a taxi driver. The Punisher is on the case. <laughs> it is. It's pre-credits to the equaliser, isn't it? Frank Castle, our titular Punisher, learns that the ringleader of the drugs gang is a man named Damage. He learns this from Ronnie, one of Damage's men. Ronnie is threatened with violence himself when he tries to get out of a gang meeting to look after his sick sister. So he informs Damage that the Punisher is looking for him, telling Damage where he saw the Punisher park his battle van. He doesn't mention that the Punisher knows who Damage is because of Ronnie. Damage hits the van as the Punisher hits the gang's drug den. The Punisher has left a number of safety precautions protecting the van, precautions that wipe out most of Damage's gang. The Punisher, meanwhile, has taken care of the gang members who remained at Damage's warehouse, but is disappointed to have missed Damage himself. He is therefore delighted to return to his van to find Damage broken and beaten by the van's internal defences. Because a comedy ending is very appropriate in the Punisher. In a a Punisher book that started with the death of a child, a comedy ending just... Genius. Didn't see that coming, did you? <laughs> Comedic ending. After a baby just got gunned down in its pram. That's that's exactly <laughs> where I thought this story was going to go. As that bloody corpse of that child... It was zigging when you thought it was going to... Dies in the streets. His blood running down the, the road and into the gutter. <laughs> Comedy triples ending. <laughs> was the last place. I think, I think this description is more gruesome than the actual... <laughs> Comic. Yeah, well, well, that's good. The opening page is really good. The first page is a nine-panel grid uh, that explodes into violence as you turn to the double-page spread on on the next page. 
Um, as Michael said, the, the nine-panel grid is very much uh, Frank Miller. Very John Romita Jr. There's, a, there's another slickness to that as well. Is, is there a bit of Art Adams to that, do you think? Well, they are all of similar school, aren't they? Right, so I see that that the last panel of the close up of the guy's face. Yeah. I get an Art Adams vibe from that. So it is very much Jim Lee in the early stage of a career where his, his influences are very much on his on his sleeve, aren't they? Mm. But that's a nine panel grid, that's a normal comic. You turn the page, um, and what you get is the violent moment where the two guys open fire on um on the guy who's informing of them, or the guy who's who's working up the um, the neighbourhood to stand up against the drug runners, isn't he? Yeah. So they shoot him, and it just so happens that he is talking to a neighbour who has a baby in a pram at that moment, and they both get caught in the crossfire. So it's quite a grisly open, and what, what Lee does there to great effect, and something that you could do in the new format books, was he opens the page up, mm. so there's no border around the page. The borders have completely gone and it's running right to the end of the page. The effect that that has is the double page spread bleeds out. Yeah. Which is what it's called, isn't it? Mm. As people are bleeding out. Yeah. Which I thought was actually really clever because what that does, because it goes off the page without yeah. a border, it gives your mind this image of this scene being a lot bloodier than it actually is. I mean, it's still pretty gruesome. They've just gunned down a baby in a pram. But you only actually see the baby's foot. Yeah. So it's it's all in your head. It's 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 the perfect kind of comic book violence in that it's it's there, but it's not there. Yeah. Your your head is filling in a lot of that because they're falling from panel. Yeah. It's off page as well because the panels frame it. Yeah. But there is no frame in this. No. So it's just literally falling out of the page. Yeah, so I thought that was really good. We'll note as well that the guy with him, which is um, Ronnie, yeah. doesn't open fire. Yes. And Ronnie is actually slightly disgusted by what's going on here, that Damage is doing well, this. this, isn't this a tale of a broken home and bad life decisions, and he's being yes. dragged into this gang, and he's now regretting that. Yeah, well, it's that, essentially, that's what the story's about. Yeah. yeah, well done. We were going to talk about that later, but we might as well talk about okay. it now. Right, okay. It's about gang war. When the Punisher <laughs> catches up with him later on, he is going to kneecap this guy, isn't he? Mm. Or worse. Uh, and they're interrupted by the, the kid's grandmother, Ronnie's grandmother. And because they're interrupted by the grandmother, the Punisher lets him go. Yeah. And just warns him, you know, if you do this again, I'll be back. And it's funny, because the grandmother essentially saved this kid's life. But it's also showing the other side of it without actually being preachy. Mm. Because it's showing us that the gangbanger has a family... And he's probably trying to support that family in the only way that he's open to him yeah. for a way to make decent money in this particular neighbourhood, which is to join a gang. And it does a really good job of highlighting that without banging you over the head with it. But it also shows us that the Punisher's actions have as many consequences as the gangbangers do. Well, isn't it kind of like an, an analysis of the Punisher kills so many unnamed criminals mm. And this is just a, a, a magnifying glass on one of those criminals. Yeah, and it does a really good job of of analysing is what the Punisher does the right thing because these people have lives as well. Yeah. But it is contrasting that 
with damage who is damaged. Yeah. And you could kind of argue he very much deserves the bullet to the head that the Punisher is going to give him. Because mm. he's irredeemable. He's got no redeemable facets. Yeah. Whereas... He's damaged in a more subtle way than having it tattooed across his forehead. That, well, he's called damage, so he's not <laughs> that subtle. That's true. He actually wears it as his name. But then, so by following Ronnie, you've got a situation here whereby if the Punisher had killed this kid, what happens to his family? Yeah. And it's an interesting question to ask in a Punisher comic where you're not normally asking those questions. Yeah, and I... To be honest, I feel like this issue would deserve that credit, though, if it was actually doing that. Because it has these elements to tell that story, but it kind of shies away from it a bit. Um, I didn't think it shied away from it. I kind it's of... not as It doesn't have as much impact or as much meaning as it could have had. See, I thought... I actually thought that was quite well handled. Mm. Because my reading of this was, it's a Punisher story... Do we really want to get too in deep on the people that the Punisher kills because then he's not the hero of the story anymore? And that the story's done this is to its credit, but maybe it's not a road you want to go down too much. I don't know, I think that could be interesting because Garth Ennis explored it in Punisher Max. You know, a, a Punisher story where it doesn't include him necessarily, but is about him. Yeah. Well, as, as a presence. Yeah, well, that's essentially a lot I of the time. It could have worked like this, but instead they've got Batman Punisher. And but isn't that what we want to read in the Punisher? I think if they were going to tell a story like this, which they clearly wanted to, mm. it would have been to a greater effect to have had that as a story instead of half of it being let's break into the Batmobile, and, <laughs> the, other, yeah. and the other half being Punisher shoots people. Hmm. See, I see what you're saying. Yeah. They could have perhaps explored the Ronnie part of the story. It's, it's like, as you said, it starts off with people being gunned down in the street, including the death of a child, but then it culminates in a jokey, he was his own downfall type end. Yeah. It it has elements of good stories and elements of others, because I have no idea what the whole Japanese family bit's about. But, no, I was, I was just going to... I've, I've got a note that they meant the Shadow Masters yeah. are a subplot in this issue, and it's completely irrelevant to this story, as evinced, lovely listener, by the fact that I completely skipped it from the <laughs> synopsis, mm. and we could have talked about this entire issue without even, without even mentioning those three pages. But it's got good elements. The, yeah. The gang's are affected by the Punisher, yep. the Punisher raiding these gangs mm. and breaking into the Punisher-mobile. All three of these <laughs> the things are, are what would be very good stories but ultimately don't gel together as well as they could have done. Do you think that this is this is too packed? Yeah. Do you think? There's kind of too much that don't work to or could have worked together but don't in this instance. See, there is the the very real possibility that this is explored in issue 9, 10, yeah. etc. This trade paperback that we've got is the Punisher War Journal trade um, with the first eight issues in. This has all been reprinted. There was never a volume two of this. Right. And um, they are currently in the process of printing a Masterworks or whatever mm. that is all Jim Lee stuff. Right. So there'll be like another seven or eight issues on the back of this because they will include the four that he didn't do because the subplots carry over. Yeah. So it's going to be something like the first 19 or so issues plus a bit of an annual, I think. So maybe that would be a better purchase. But I do find it kind of interesting that I complain about them all gelling, not gelling together, mm. when I actually quite liked that he was looking for this person who would come 
looking for him as well. Yeah. And that he was his own downfall. I do like that. But with that introduction and with the focus on the the lives of these people, I, I didn't like it altogether, I guess. See, I, I did. I quite liked that. Because I like that the whole reason Ronnie doesn't go to the warehouse and attack the Punisher-mobile is yeah. because his sister's ill. Mm. And damage is on about killing him just because he doesn't show up because his sister's ill. Which is not to say Ronnie's not questionable in his own way, yeah. but he does ultimately put family before his gang. So yeah, does well, that... He's only in the gang because of his family. Yeah, and as we saw at the beginning, he didn't shoot the kid mm. or the shopkeeper or the mother. And he didn't have anything to do with the taxi driver that followed them either. That was damage again who shot the taxi driver, wasn't it? Oh no, he did shoot. But he was But Ronnie's the shooting the car, yeah, because damage actually says to him, no, shoot the driver. So there's a feeling that's given in the story, which again I full kudos to Carl Parts for not banging you over the head with this. Yeah. It's all in the little moments that Ronnie doesn't actually really want to be a gang member. No. He wants a way out of this. But he now has to be because of that. But again, the Punisher would have put a bullet through his head. Yeah. So, who's right and who's wrong? Mm. Which is a good question to ask about a Punisher story. Yeah. But again, maybe not a path you want to go down too much. Because ultimately, the way the Punisher works is, as with the Ennis run, the Punisher isn't the central protagonist. Because the Punisher's not going to change. Yeah. So, you have to make it about the people in his orbit. Mm. And the way you make the Punisher work as a character is the people in his orbit have to be irredeemable scumbags. Yeah. Otherwise, the Punisher as a character doesn't work. The Punisher is an executioner who has no redeemable qualities. Yes. So the way you get around that is by making the people that the Punisher kills really, really lowest of the earth. They're like chill trial traffickers, yes. that kind of thing. And you don't feel... In fact, there's a cathartic thrill out of seeing the Punisher kill those people. Yeah. Wife, beaters, rapists, that kind of thing. Which we've discussed before. Which we've discussed before. But in, in this, it doesn't follow that path far enough, I don't think. It forgets it halfway through the issue. issue. Yeah, Ronnie does become irrelevant at this point. Yeah. At the point that we're in in the comic now, Damage phones him. He grasses up to Damage that the Punisher's in town because he's seen his van. Can completely neglects to mention that he's told the Punisher where he is. Yeah, well, which maybe, you would. Maybe he did it on purpose. Yeah, well, possibly. Maybe he's hoping this damage... This is my out now. Yeah, maybe he's hoping damage will get killed in, in, the, uh, in the crossfire. But then, yeah, Ronnie goes away. It's two good stories that don't work together. Right, okay. Because we're now on to the second good story. Yeah. See, when we get into the second half of the issue, although Ronnie's watching what's going on, I suppose, from his, his mm. building. Ronnie's watching what's going on. And we do kind of get into, like, a farce at this point, don't we? We mm. get into a comedic farce. In that Damage is a guy with no brains, very little brains. He's one of those people who thinks he's tough because he's got a gun. Yeah. And he is, in fact, not very tough at all. Mm. And I was expecting the end to be him crying and weeping because he's lost, which we didn't get. Which could be a, a good commentary on guns. Yeah, it could be. That the guy is only powerful because he's got a gun. Yeah. So, again, they could be raising that issue. Um, I, I liked here... Like, mm, see, you've made me rethink this now. Because you have got the thing here where the second half of the issue is this really slightly comedic tale mm. where the Punisher's going after the people that are going after him. 
So they're not there. So the Punisher just kills some nomarchs while they're attacking the Punisher Mobile, yeah. which is a great name for it. And which, the Punisher Mobile. Go on. It would have been good. This is good stuff. This is funny stuff. But it's doesn't work but as well. Yeah, but it's coming hot on the heels of a first half. There was a character study about a gang member who doesn't want to be a gang member. Yeah. And a story where a baby just got shot in a pram. Yeah. I actually see what you mean now. <laughs> yes. Because the second half is, is farcical. It's just a laugh. The van, with all its its onboard defences, completely destroys Damage's gang. And I actually thought we're at the point now of stretching credibility for a Punisher comic. Yeah. I didn't necessarily think the Punisher should have the Batmobile. Or a van that was this high tech. Well, didn't the Punisher go through an overly gadgety phase? Yes, which Garth Ennis got rid of the yeah. minute he got hold of the character, I think didn't he? As good as an issue this is, it's still a reason as to why Ennis's Punisher run is one of the strongest. Because it, it stripped all this back. Yeah. And just got him back to being a guy with guns. Yeah. Yeah. Alright, that's fair enough. Um, I did like the Punisher just taking out the entire gangs with no problem at all was fun. I like that. I did think that damage being taken down by Dr. Octopus's tentacles. Yeah, I thought that. Yeah. I thought, yeah, but at the same time, the Marvel Universe may have a company that manufactures stuff like that. But it's entirely possible a company has seen that and gone, that's a good idea. Got a patent for it. Yeah, and designed his own version of them. So that kind of does make sense. It makes sense that Microchip could have got them as well. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And Damage gets caught in the, the van and his boss is... He's not his boss. His, um, his friend Egghead just walks away. Yeah. I'm wondering if that's going to happen. If he's going to take over the gang at this point or if the gang is just gone now. Mm. And I did... I liked the ending where the Punisher comes back and he thinks he's not won. Yeah. He thinks he's not got the leader. And Damage is just tied up in the back. I'm damaged, I'm the biggest and the baddest. Well, no, you're not. And that's funny. Yeah, I, I do it like it. It is amusing. It's the Punisher went after something that came to him instead. It's a good ending. It's very... Yeah. But again... <laughs> I mean, it's a good issue. It's it's two good issues okay, in one. Um, I mean, if we're talking about Jim Lee, which is ostensibly what we're here for, um, the ending is a bit whimsical. Mm. for a story that started out with a, gay, a baby being murdered in a pram. But Lee's layouts are spectacular. Yes. Some excellent colouring. It's it's nice to see Jim Lee without Scott Williams bringing the slick, because I didn't think this was perhaps as slick as some of Lee's stuff is. Mm. This is actually quite gritty, as befits uh, a Punisher tale. And he's having to draw real people in a real world... And it really demonstrates what a great artist he could have been yeah. if he'd carried on down this path. Which is why I asked the question earlier, if he'd hitched his star to the Punisher bandwagon instead of the X-Men bandwagon. Maybe he would have made millions, but then lost it all as the Punisher dwindled. Or maybe it would have... As the 90s moved into the 2000s and the Punisher began to sell less. Or maybe he would have still gone to Image when he did. Maybe Image would have happened whatever. Yeah, because it was still... Marvel, yeah. he wouldn't pay for the plane ticket. But then, if he was on the Punisher and not the X-Men, would he have been going to all these conventions That's promoting true. the X-Men, which was Marvel's top title, yeah. if he was on the Punisher? Mm. Because, as we'll mention later, him being on the X-Men was a mistake, was a fluke. Right. He was second chance. He was second choice. Mm. So, 
what I liked about this, other than the Michael talking about tonally, it just switches gears halfway through. Yeah. Which, when I read it, I was kind of went with and didn't really notice. It's you that's pointed that out, and I'm looking at it now, going, "Yeah, you're kind of right here, <laughs> aren't you?" It's it's like they did an episode of the Equalizer that turned into the Trouble with Tribbles halfway through, <laughs> and it did tonally. I don't know. That sounds quite funny. <laughs> tonally, not two tastes that go great together, perhaps. Mm. So, I don't know, maybe you're right. It's possible. But Karl Potts' script is very tight and very jam-packed, which you think may be to its detriment. Mm. But, again, if we're just talking about this as a Jim Lee showcase, it means that Lee can't fall back on his usual tricks of gritted teeth and splash pages. There is absolutely nowhere in this issue where he can insert gratuitous splashes. The story is so tight and so dense and a lot of dialogue on some of these pages and a lot to get through in the 22 pages that he has to focus on sequential storytelling. Yeah. He has to focus on telling the story Karl Potts wants to tell. And not drawing pinups. Yeah. And by doing this, Karl Potts isn't catering to Lee's ego and showboating. Lee is actually demonstrating him to be an exceptional layout and sequential well, art man. Did Jim Lee have any ego and showboating at this time? Well, that's it. He's only just begun at this point. He's not Jim Lee yet, he's is not, he? He's not learned of splash pages yet. He's, well, he's not learned... Because one of the things about going to X-Men, one of the reasons that Clermont got kicked off the boot was so Jim Lee could do it all himself. Right. So, so you think that went to his head? Yeah. I honestly do. I honestly think that maybe if he'd stuck around with a good writer for longer, he would have developed more as a sequential storyteller. He would have been a better storyteller than an artist. Yeah. Possibly. Because mm. this shows that he had the chops. Yeah. I thought that this was... It's There's no splashes. There's no gratuitous pin-ups. The dialogue is a lot of it. The layouts are all... You know, there's nothing... There's no McFarlane shattering of comics um, traditions in this mm. in the way that Todd McFarlane would do. It's just a straightforward comic. But it's, it is well laid out and it tells the story well. Isn't that what you want? Yeah. Ultimately? But it's not of what you expect of Jim Lee now. No, it isn't. And that's probably why I like it. That it's not what Jim Lee is now. It's very different. Yeah. It's the artwork itself. It's it's still recognisably Jim Lee. Oh. If someone showed you a panel from that comic, particularly if I flick through this and I show you that Wolverine, who would you say that was who drew that? I don't know, actually. Or would you not say that was Jim Lee? Because we almost covered that Wolverine two-parter. Right, okay. And then ultimately I decided, well, no, because we're going to do an X-Men issue. Mm. So I didn't see the point of that. I think it's still recognisably Jim Lee with a touch of Will's Potassio. Yeah. Touch of Art Adams. Yeah. And like you say, a little bit of Frank Miller and John Jr. I would have said it was Frank Miller, to be honest. Some of the panels. Are nice. uh, it's far too clean for Frank Miller. If not Frank Miller, then definitely Klaus Janssen. See, I, I, it's not scratchy enough to be Janssen. Some of the faces, though. Mm, I wonder if Janssen did some... What's his name on it? Because, see, the thing with this is, the credits for this book all were always the on the letters page. Yeah. In the comic, they were never actually in the comic. So all you've got here is that Pencils, Jim Lee, Inks, Jim Lee, Don Hudson, Scott Williams and co. Now, according to Mike's Amazing World, this one was all Jim Lee. Right. I have no reason to doubt Mike's Amazing World. But for me, it's not scratchy enough for Klaus Jankson to have inked it. And it's good and it's pleasing to look at. And I think this is why he could stick to deadlines. Yeah. He's not become scratchy lines everywhere, Jim Lee, yet. No. 
And as and as good as detailed as he is, that's really good actually. And he is. I mean, we've just flipped through back to issue four where there's some flashbacks to Nam. The Nam stuff's brilliant, isn't it? Yeah, the but, Nam I mean, stuff's great. Jim Lee's now is known for all of his lines everywhere, isn't it? Yes, that's not here. Yeah, is that why his his deadlines are always he's late for them? Oh, well, I don't know because I, th- I would argue that the artwork here is more detailed. Yeah, but Jim Lee's now got his his, his style, his signature style. Yeah. So there's a difference between whether you're good and whether you have a style. Hmm. And Jim Lee now has a style, whether or not he's good or not. Right. But is that style the reason why he's late for deadlines? Possibly. Or known to be late for them. Yeah, if we're going to be nice. We're going to be nice. Jim Lee, nice handsome man he is. <laughs> he is. He's a very handsome man. And uh, he procreates with the best of them. <laughs> I think that's fair to say. Oh, what was your overall impression of that? Then? I enjoyed it. Um, but I think I might have enjoyed it more if they were two separate stories. Or maybe you'd have enjoyed him if you'd read the whole thread, possibly. Maybe. But as an issue on its own... It was good. It's two... I, I think it's two good stories that don't work well together. Okay. See, I I, I thought it was quite tight, tightly packed, well-scripted, good art. Uh, I didn't... I mean, I did point out that the ending seemed a little bit what's-it compared to the beginning, because that did jar on me a little bit when I read it. Yeah. I did not notice until you pointed it out that there was a massive tonal shift halfway through the book. Mm-hmm. Where it suddenly becomes a farce and a comedy. Yeah. So, fair play to you. Right. <laughs> fair enough. Of course, Lee made his name on X-Men. A title he arrived at remarkably quickly. With only two big books under his belt, Lee made his debut as the artist on the main X title, Uncanny X-Men, with issue 248 in 1989. And quickly became the regular penciler with issue 256. His longest consecutive run was 10 issues, from 267 to 277 from September 1990 to June 1991. It's quite amazing to think that Lee's entire career was built on a run of comics that lasted less than a year, especially as he wasn't even first choice to draw the book. Lee was second choice after Wills Potassio turned it down. With Lee in place on Uncanny, another newcomer, Rob Liefeld, on X-Force, and a brand new X-Book waiting in the wings to boost Marvel's bottom line, editor Bob Harass used this newfound sales bonanza as an excuse to usurp writer Chris Clermont from the X-Titles he'd written for 16 years. Reading Sean Howe's book, Marvel, The Untold Story, Lee Liefeld and other hot artist of the day, Todd McFarlane, don't come across too well, seemingly stomping all over anyone in their way but the sales figures backed them up. Marvel, at that point, all about sales and less about creativity, backed their artists. Truth be told, our next pick, Uncanny X-Men issue 268, does look great, but the story is a tad muddled. One of Lee's most fondly remembered comics, this is the first canonical meeting between Wolverine, here called Logan, and Captain America during World War II. Similar to The Punisher, the cover to this is almost quintessential Lee. Wolverine Cap and Black Widow pose dramatically on a rooftop. Thighs are huge, poses are stiff, and there's a nice shot of Widow's arse. The 90s had arrived. It's not as good a piece of art as the Punisher cover, but it's more recognisable as Jim Lee. What do you think of that cover? It's it's become iconic. Yes. Yeah, that's a Marvel Zombies cover. Is it? Yeah. Right, so it's, a, it's become a very iconic cover. It's similar to the Punisher one, and it's a bunch of people stood around pausing. It's more posed and more stiff. I'm more along the lines of, I've drawn this because I can sell the original art it's for a ton of money. more Jim Lee. Yes. Okay, is that all we think of the cover? Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, we're reading this in the UK annual 
for 1996, which was yours, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. I presume Nan bought it, yeah? Because it's falling to bits and it says it was 40p. Yes. So she must have got it from some sale somewhere. I think it's falling to bits because I read it that much. You did, yeah. As usual, the annuals, there's an awful lot of other material in this. There's an index page and the main stories by Scott Lobdell and Chris Bacalo, which is nice isn't it? Um, Chris Bacalo is a pretty excellent artist in his own right who seems to be told to draw like Jim Lee. Yeah. Which is a bit of a shame because his work on Shade the Changing Man's pretty damn good. And then you've got the requisite text story. I don't know where that's come from and no one is credited as having created it. So it's not like that Grant Morrison or Alan Moore one right, in the okay. Superman annuals. Oh yeah. So when they first started. Posted by Tim Sale, which is quite good, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Wolverine's a bit big. Yeah, I think but that may just be uh, Tim Sale. Uh, John Romita Jr. has given us one of Gambit, Storm and Jean Grey. The inker is... I can't read. Roop. Yeah, all right, fair enough. And then there's um, a pretty good one by Scott McDaniel, which is very... Um, what would you say of that? Very stylized one of Jean Grey. Yeah. Lots of negative space. Is that Negative's right? Negative's black, right? Isn't it? I don't know. But there's no the, negative is white, so right? Yeah. So and the, there's no lines defining the character. It's just color. It's just color, which is really good. And then an utterly shit one by Liam Sharp, which uh, apparently that's Iceman. Why has he got spikes sticking out of his shoulders and wrists? And is that Jubilee? I think. And the Beast looks terrible. Yeah. And that one's awful. Madripoor Knights. Uh, written by Chris Claremont without by Jim Lee and Scott Williams. Madripoor, 1941. Captain America comes to the aid of a Russian man who is being attacked by ninjas because Claremont is heavily influenced by Frank Miller. To emphasise this fact, the ninjas are agents of the hand because of course they are. Cap runs into problems and is aided by a mysterious man dressed like Indiana Jones. The man, who says his name is Logan, is also hunting the hand. Later, the three gentlemen have a drink together with the Russian revealed to be Ivan Petrovich. Logan antagonizes Baron von Strucker, just also happens to be in the bar, and Ivan explains that Strucker and the Hand seem to be in league together and have kidnapped a young girl who Ivan is looking after, Natasha Romanoff. Logan has no truck with child kidnappers and helps out, but is apparently killed in the attempt. This allows Cap and Ivan to rescue Natasha, but they are betrayed by the American consulate who is in league with the Nazis. The Hand want Natasha to be the master assassin and begin the ceremony to initiate this because the Hand always have to have some tedious ceremony before they do anything. To no one's surprise, Logan is still alive and aids Cap and Ivan in stopping the Hand and the Nazis. 49 years later, the then present, Natasha, now the Black Widow, is attacked by the Hand but is aided by Wolverine, Psylocke and Jubilee. Widow tells Wolverine that she is in mad rapport due to rumours of an alliance between Strucker's children, Fenris and Matsuo Tusariababa, Abba, Yabba Yabba, Yabba Dabba Doo, leader of the Hand and she aims to discover where they are meeting. Psylocke, Black Widow and Jubilee discover that Strucker's kids are to meet up on a yacht and as Jubilee disables the engines, Wolverine takes out the girl. Black Widow is furious to learn the Fenris and Matsuo that they have captured are fake and the real deal have apparently anticipated their attack. Monitoring the events via CCTV, the shadowy figures toast the victory, hopefully the first of many. Uh, the splash page is undeniably iconic shot of Cap. Yes. Shield looks a bit flat. Yeah. Rather than, than curved. Um, Claremont's narrative voice is very odd here. 
in the this beautifully drawn image of Captain America mm. leaping into action, all in his iconic star-spangled glory. And Clermont writes these captions about how Cap is wondering how he could be such a moron to have volunteered for the super serum, leading to be in situations like this. Yeah. It's a bit yeah. deaf, that. It is. Maybe Clermont just doesn't like Captain America. <laughs> Why would he not? That's, I don't know. It is. It's, it's kind of like, you kind of know what you're getting in for with Clermont, though. Yes. Overly verbose. Yeah. In many ways. Which is a shame, because... Early Clermont was very good. Yeah. Later Clermont, and I can kind of understand why he would be a bit shooed away. Yeah, well, kind of shoved out the door. I mean, how how long has Dan Slott been on Spider-Man? Do you think after 16 years we're going to be shooing him away as well? I don't know that he's necessarily been on for 16 years. It just feels that way. <laughs> um, you, Yeah, you're right. This era of the X-Men isn't particularly well regarded by X-Men fans who feel that Clermont has kind of lost his way at this point and was meandering a bit. I have to confess, I've not got a clue what's going on with the X-Men portion. Yeah. I vaguely recall Psylocke and Jubilee, but I don't remember them being part of the main focus of the team, mm. which is what they are. This is essentially Wolverine's Angels, isn't it? Yeah. So, for me, the 1941 or 1942 versions of the book were were the preferred versions. Yeah. So, that's, you know, what do you think? Yeah, maybe maybe it's the reserves team. I don't know. Yeah, it is. Um, Wolverine's just got... He's just friends with them, so they're off on their own little... Well, him and, him and Jubilee had that kind of Batman and Robin thing going on for a while, didn't they? Yeah. Where she hung around with him in Madripoor where he wore the patch, which was a when disguise. When he was called Patch. Yeah and, <laughs> yeah, and everyone was just like, yeah, we know it's you. Yeah. But if you want to be called Patch... It is It is kind of silly to name yourself after your disguise. Yes. It's like if you wore a bandana and called yourself... Bandana. Bandana. <laughs> Yeah, nobody would recognise you yeah. if you wore that bandana. That would that would actually be really good. Uh, Jim Lee said in an interview with Stanley that this issue only exists because Clermont said he wanted to draw... Not Clermont. He told Clermont, sorry, that he wanted to draw Captain America. I don't know specifically why the hand are here. Because Clermont wants to write Frank Miller. Yeah, that does. it is very Miller-esque yeah. in a lot of ways, isn't it? And fair play to Clermont with the script. Mm. He does do a really good job as you go along of... of the flashbacks and then the present day stuff blending together. Yeah, at first they don't quite connect, mm. but then you see the relationships and how they, they do connect. Yeah, as they reveal the connection with Natasha, the Black Widow, and what how her story pans out. Mm. So that's really quite good. Logan looks very baby-faced in 1942. Yeah. Doesn't he? I mean, I don't know how old he's supposed to be, but it, it does lead into the question of... Um, so Cap's in the present day because he, he got put on ice. Logan's got the healing factor. All right. Why is Black Widow, who would clearly be in her late 50s, early 60s, yeah. still active and sexy as a 25-year-old? Good genes. Is that what it um, is? Yeah. I'm not going to clue. I don't remember there being any precedent for Black Widow being in World War II. Mm. I mean, granted, she's only here very briefly. Yeah. But I don't remember them ever. She was a Cold War spy. I mean, if you're going off the original conception of her, then yes, in the 1960s, she will have been born in the 40s. Yeah. But this is implying that she's aged in real time. So she'd be 55, 50 years of age at this point. Mm. 49 years after she's in this story, if we assume she's, what, six? Yeah. So she, yeah, so she's 55. She's not jumping around like that as a 55-year-old show. I mean, she could be in very good shape, but, you know. I don't. I got nothing on that. Mm. I mean, 
maybe one of the things that people have said about this story is it screws around with established continuity somewhat. Yeah. Maybe it's more the Black Widow stuff than the Captain America Wolverine it's stuff. It's the most apparent thing that springs to mind. Yeah, that like Black Widow was, was alive in World War II. Mm. How old would she be then? And it's, it doesn't work, does it? Because you, you end up thinking that instead of following the story. And Jubilee does point that out yeah. and then goes nowhere with it. So that's Clermont kind of ignoring that. Uh, also, typically, Clermont, <laughs> Black Widow spells three panels speaking before she eventually passes out due to the drug. Yeah, it's so. How much exposition can <laughs> I say before I pass out? <laughs> yeah, that's quite funny. Yeah. Oh, that's it's kind of like you've got to time yourself. And then we're going to talk about this giant robot and then Magneto should have. <laughs> what happened next? Tell me! <laughs> I like the idea of a giant robot. They all time, they have high scores. Hmm. The X-Men of this tally chart, kind of like in Top Gear, they have their own little chart on how much exposition or how long it takes to pass out. Before you get knocked out. I did it in nine panels. Well, yeah. I did it in ten. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. yeah. They have like, <laughs> Richard Hammond slamming it on the magnetic thing. Or Matt LeBlanc, yeah. as it would be now. All right, fair enough. Uh, the 1942 stuff established is that Serif, who's a little tiny person, uh, runs a bar that is very Casablanca-esque. It is. Um, again, I have no idea if she's important to X-Men lore. I, I don't know who she is, do you? She just runs this bar. She's, she's friends with Wolverine. And we'll never see her again? No. Alright, fair enough. Um, Logan is after Strucker, as is Cap and Ivan, which explains why they cross each other's paths. Yeah. So they're both after the same thing, but coming from different goals, so they've crossed each other's paths without one of those typical Marvel team-up things of, um, you know, having a fight before they actually get down to the, the nitty-gritty of, of the team-up. It's a good way to bring them together. That would have been cool, though, Wolverine versus Captain America. I'm sure we've seen that at some point, I guess. We? But then again, it is quite a cool Captain America meets Indiana Jones story. Yeah, well, she's what it is, isn't it? It's an Indiana Jones... Because his clothes are very Indiana Jones. Yeah. Right down to the fedora and the colour of his pants and the colour of his shirt. And I'm sure that's intentional. Mm. Pretty sure that that's, that's on the ball. Um... Lee's art seems better in the 1942 sequences. Do you not think? Yeah, yeah. And I wonder if that is, like we've just talked about all the Punisher issue, he's drawing real people in real environments wearing real clothes. Mm. So he can't fall back on the splash pages and the skin-tight costumes and the posing. Yeah. He's got to do proper storytelling. It's what he has to draw. Whereas the X-Men stuff, it's all flashy and Jim Lee because that's what he wants to draw. Yes. So we go back to the present day. And speaking of flashy... (laughs) Yes. Um, Black Widow wakes up in bed. Wolverine just watching her. To be fair, he's keeping an eye on her. Is, oh, is that what he's doing? Yeah. Well, tell the lovely listener what she's now wearing. She's wearing, if you can call them pajamas. <laughs> they're not pajamas. You can see through them. They're, so I don't see the point of them. They come to bed with me clothes. Yeah. Aren't they? Which begs the question who changed her out of her outfit and put her in that? Yeah. It it would have worked and it wouldn't have been out of character for Wolverine to for her to say, Why am I wearing these? Mm. And Wolverine said, I had to take you out of your costume, I had a look round through your wardrobe, I liked the look of these. Yeah. As it is, she's wearing a very skimpy negligee thing. Uh, and he's patched up her wounds. And got rid of a spider bite thing. Which implies that it is Wolverine that's done this. And is that Psylocke's slinky nightgown? I don't know. Because I can't imagine that fitting Wolverine. <laughs> Wolverine walks around wearing a nightgown. Yeah, you know, well, I'm not saying that he couldn't. I shouldn't. <laughs> I wouldn't. Um, 
Uh, the, the, Jubilee has that thing here where she points out that everybody that Wolverine knows is a fabulously gorgeous babe. Yeah. Which he actually mentions in the dialogue. Does she know Russian? I don't know. Because she refers here to Natasha calling Logan little uncle, but she only does it in Russian. Yeah, that's true. So is the implication that Jubilee can speak Russian? Maybe. Must be. It's the only way she'd know it. Mm. It's the only way she'd know what it was. I do quite like Jubilee in this, actually. Yeah, been, Jubilee's quite funny. I've never been so. bothered about it before, but I like the borderline subtle jealousy she has of everyone. Mm. Does she not have a slight crush on Logan? Yeah. Is that not where that's coming from? Was it that? Because didn't they have more of a big brother, little sister type relationship? Uh, I, I don't... From what I know of them. I don't remember. I do remember she hung around with him like a Robin type scenario thing. But I don't actually recall what the relationship was. Or is she just jealous of how developed Wolverine's <laughs> friends are? Because you do get that great scene where she checks out the boobs of both of them. Yeah, and, and then little... looks down at all. <laughs> then sulks. Yeah. That's quite funny. Mm. I love she's playing Cat's Cradle. Yeah. Which is nice as well. And there's, we get to a point where Widow and Wolverine start going investigating what's going on. I like that the 1942 bits have big fat black borders around them. Yeah. To differentiate. Um, black Widow's holding the guy that they're roughing up. Says, I don't know how much longer I can hold you and going to drop him. And Widow says, I'll be sure to catch him. <laughs> Schnicked. Yeah. That's funny. I like that. I thought that was really good. And then we've got this really ridiculous scene of Psylocke and Black Widow going undercover on the yacht in skimpy skirts and bosom revealing tops. Mm. I don't know what I felt about it's, that. It's a Jim Leeism. It is. It's like they're in these skimpy outfits because that's what Jim Lee wants to draw. Because they're not in it for more than a page. But then, I mean, obviously they're trying to distract the bad guys, which works. You know, if you're going to distract men, what's the best way to distract them? With a couple of pretty women worrying not very much. Yeah, but are they dressed like that to distract men? Or are they dressed like that because that's what the men on this book and reading the book wanted them to wear? Yeah. Especially scenes on the very next page, they're removing the wigs and the costumes, but they've got the full superhero costumes on. Yeah. And it's like, well, surely Black Widow would have to squeeze into that for a while. And then Psylocke's got to put all those silly bands around her thighs and her, her muscles. Yeah. And it's would it not have made more sense to have them remain in the skimpy costumes and perhaps point out that the reason they're wearing very, very short skirts is so it doesn't impede them when they're kicking people. Yeah. And maybe actually have Black Widow use the high heel shoes to put through somebody's eye. Yeah. Actually use them as offensive weapons. Unless uh, the, the, the skin is, is, is part of the costume. You know, like how Batman can wear a mask and they cover up his horns. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that's what they're wearing. And I like that Jubilee... Just a full-body, skimpy outfit. Yeah, and they just rip it off and then <laughs> yeah. the costumes are underneath. I like that Jubilee tries to shake her ass as well. Yeah. and Because she's obviously feeling slightly threatened by the presence of Black Widow and Psylocke. So, yeah, that's that's very 90s Jim Lee there, isn't it? Mm. Uh, you know, Captain America seems very blasé about Wolverine killing people. But he is a soldier. But as we've mentioned before, he's a soldier and it's World War II and, you know, they're Nazis, so maybe that's yeah. fine. Isn't it? <laughs> Nobody, even in our times of great offence being taken at the slightest thing, mm. nobody's going to say killing Nazis is a bad thing. No. Really. I hope. 
Yeah. Maybe somebody would. I don't know. And then it all culminates with that really good scene where Captain America goes to Wolverine and says, we make a pretty good team. You want to want to come with us? And Wolverine's like, eh, work alone. I don't want to be somebody's sidekick. Mm. And Cap's like, well, I kind of thought you'd be my sidekick. Yeah. That's funny. Mm-hmm. It's a good funny bit of dialogue, though. And um, it all ends with the targets getting away. Because at this stage in the X-Men's development, Chris Claremont was exceptionally adept at raising questions and not terribly adept at answering them. Uh, this was a pretty good issue of the X-Men from this time period. Yeah. Bearing in mind we don't know anything about this time period. No. It was a interestingly and it was an interestingly good written story. Well written story. Good written. Okay. But uh <laughs> I make my own English me. Well, no, because the way I think about it, well written means it was a, a well. Oh, it was thing. it was well written. Right. But okay. Good written. It's because it's not well written. It has its problems, but it's still good. Oh no, I, I thought he, he blended the two plots together very well. They came together very well at the end. I mean, yes, but he still had the yeah chronological there's a, questions. There's a lot of questions. Yeah, how is Black Widow this old? Who are the bad guys? Were the rest of the team? Yeah. All of these are, are valid questions, but you know, it's convoluted. And it's it's the World War Two stuff's fun. Yes, the it's World... in Indiana Jones meets Captain America. The, fun. Yeah, the World War Two stuff is is exceptionally good. We're here to to look at Jim Lee's art though, and say nice things about about Jim Lee to make a change. And um, on that score, I thought this was a winner. Yeah, um, he's he's good, but his downfall is that he has now found his style. Yeah. It, it is amazing how quickly he became Jim Lee. Yeah. And then stopped developing as an artist. Isn't it? Mm. So, yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. Because there are a lot of Jim Lee-isms. He's found his style, which is good, but his style is... It's very Jim Lee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not as bad as he would get. Again, there's not a lot of splash pages in this, apart from the opening page. The storytelling is, is pretty good. Again, he's not like McFarlane in the breaking of the way comics were traditionally laid out and mm. trying to bust out that design. But ha- what he does is, is exceptionally slick and exceptionally well done. And like you said, Wolverine's glowy red eyes of anger. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good panel mm. with the, the little vampire It's, it's all exceptionally well done, but the problem with it is that it's it, there are certain elements where it's Jim Lee drawing what Jim Lee wants to do. It's it's Vicky Vale mm. in her underwear in her again. underwear, yeah. Okay. Um... I mean, I suppose the thing that we have to point out is this was 25 years ago. And yet, it does look like Jim Lee could have drawn this yesterday. Yeah. Within reason. Mm. It's Jim Lee and Scott Williams. And there's a good commander layout. The anatomy's good. But it's 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 like his development as an artist stopped at a certain point in 1991. <laughs> and then never changed. He's, his style, he's kept his style yeah. all the way throughout. But his is, it was more refined. Yeah, or he, he refined upon it, but now not so much. Now he's he's gone away a little bit. Yeah, is that what you think? The cover to the annual is one of the covers to his X Men run. I don't, I don't know which number of X Men it is, but it's the one with all of them on the cover: Jim Lee and Bob Wyatt. That's actually really good. Do you not think all the figures are too close to each other? They all look like they're like this, suppose, yeah. don't they? Instead of actually a suitable distance right, between right, them. I suppose. But still, it's, it's really good. And the, the colouring's good in it as well. But what kind of cover is it? It's a Jim Lee cover. It's Wolverine pulls in with his claws out. 
in all fairness, it, it's it's a good annual cover. Yeah, it, it makes an exceptional annual cover because that's what they press ganged it into, into. Yes, this is falling to bits. <laughs> this but it, it was second hand. I mean, the, the the main difference for me between this what we've just covered and the Punisher issue that we we covered earlier on is that this is where Lee hit it big and defined his style for good and ill. Yeah, the Punisher one, whilst it's good, he's, as we pointed out, he looks like a whole bunch of other artists. Yeah. Whereas in this, that's undeniably Jim Lee. Yeah, and it's it's the Jim Lee of today in many ways. Big boobs, skimpy costumes, posing, and that's just the men. <laughs> uh, <laughs> thighs as big as the panels. Thighs as big as the panels, yeah. Muscled chests. Yeah. Um, and all the stupid poses, like, come on, what's what's Wolverine doing there? Yeah, yeah, it, that's what I'm saying to you about the 1942 stuff. He doesn't have Wolverine doing ridiculous poses. Even even though he's he's holding Black Widow, he's still <laughs> yeah, he's like chest out, stomach in, oh, clenching my biceps so you can see me guns. And like outside of comics, because it's kind of like that's the style of people pose like that in comics. But it's it's Captain Hammer. Yeah. <laughs> the only person, hey the yeah, man. The only superhero who poses like that outside of Jim Lee comics is Captain, Captain Hammer. Hammer. Yeah, and see, but like I say, he's not doing that in the 1940s stuff. He's a real guy drinking real beer in a real bar. Yeah, we're in Indiana Jones fedora. Do you think it's, he has this thing where drawing costumes tricks him into drawing poses? No, I think he has this thing where he draws costumes. And suddenly in the back of his mind is he can sell the original art for a shit ton of money. Yeah, no one cares about the people. Yeah. They just care about the costumes. Yeah. So, like, you'll get most pages will have at least one reason for somebody to buy the original art. Yeah. A girl in a skimpy costume, or Wolverine with the glowy red eyes of anger, or anything like something like that. Was that a Jim Lee thing? Because I thought that was Rob Liefeld. Maybe, well, maybe Liefeld had a word in Jim Lee's shell-like. Yeah. And said, look, you can make extra money if you do this. And suddenly the stories have been written to highlight splashes yeah. and dramatic pauses that can then make them more money in the after-sales market. So it could be uh, one of his mates. Hey, Jim, I really want to buy you uh, original yeah. art drawn Captain America. And then it's, hey, Rob, can you write an issue with Captain America yeah. in it? can you write me an issue with Captain America in it? Yeah. And that, to me, is the main difference between this and the Punisher. His Punisher work is more nuanced it's more real mm. than his X-Men work. And, you know, he's not going to be selling many of those pages on the aftermarket as iconic splash pages. Yeah. They, they're probably still worth a ton of money because it's Jim Lee in the early days. Mm. But he'll, he's going to make money from that splash of Captain America, isn't he? Definitely, yeah. And, and I think that's what happened. His X-Men work is what became popular and he stopped there yeah. and never moved on. Because why should he? You know, in the pantheon of image creators, he and McFarlane were the better artists of the original seven, weren't they? Mm. Maybe Wilts Potassio was, was up there. Eric Larson was a bit too cartoony, but he still had a good and unique style yeah. where he wasn't just aping other people. But McFarlane and Lee were the ones that stuck out from the crowd. And Lee's ultra-slick style was comics in the 90s. Mm. And he did it well. This issue's fine for the time that it was done. And fair play to him, like, the Chris Piccolo one where he's been told to look like Jim Lee. Yeah. Jim Lee's pretty much a nobody, or a nobody becoming a somebody who's done very little, but he completely shifted the tone of the comics industry. Same with McFarlane. Yeah. 
same same unfortunately with Liefeld. Yes. I mean, fortunately, people seem to have moved away from the Liefeld influence as people were like, he's not really that good. Have we, though? Oh, I don't know. DC hired him to do an entire... Do you remember yes, at the beginning of the New 52 where they had, like, the dark and the edge? Yes. They hired him to do about three different series. And what what, what did... He did Grifter one? He did Hawk and Dove. Right. He did uh, Grifter. And he did Hawkman. And he did Deathstroke. And how long did they last? About two issues. Right. See, so... But Jim Lee stuff, Justice League, he did that for a year. What did he do after Justice League? Bat- more Batman. He did it for six months solid. Yeah. Took two months off, did it for another six months solid. With many hands as inkers. And then stuck to covers. And then did and then did a little bit of like Batman Europa and Batman Europa he's been doing now for what, nine years? Well what's what's the deal it with It was in suicide? development for just under a decade before it was an actual thing. And what But even then Jim Lee was going to do the entire thing, but he only did one issue. Right. We do it with different artists on every other issue. And what's the deal with Suicide Squad? Oh, that's when he just come out, hasn't it? All right, so we don't know what schedule that's going to adopt. Even uh, the nine-issue Superman story. For tomorrow? No. Unchained? Unchained. Yeah. That was over a year. Yeah, he was a bit late with that. And, uh, you know, and that's not great. It's not awful. It's not awful on the Jim Lee standard. <laughs> no, it's not awful generally. Scott Snyder's story's not bad. Oh, you meant... Oh, yeah, as, as, a, story, as a piece. Right. It's, right. It's, not, it's not awful. I mean, all this being said, he still sells. He does. He's still one of comics' main superstars. This is apparently what people want from him. Is giving your audience what they want a bad thing? Well, yeah. Okay. As <laughs> Comics is the perfect medium to show people why what they want is the bad, wrong thing. Yeah. Nightfall, for instance. Yeah, but that was the point of Nightfall. Exactly. And I'd, uh, especially with Jim Lee now being one of the heads of DC, Yeah. is... DC are not, and the sales proved this, mm. they are not a very good company at doing, at giving fans what they should be giving them, and instead they have just been catering to them. Right. They lost them because they catered to them, in my opinion. But now they're getting them back because Rebirth's what good stories with characters that we recognise. And... Yeah, but how long? Well, it's it's still doing all right. I... And we're six months down the line. I know, but I will agree that Rebirth was a good thing when in five years' time we're not sat here covering the next big thing. <laughs> the next big reboot. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that was our uh, that was our Let's Be Nice to Jim Lee episode. <laughs> we weren't as nice as we could have been. I think we were nice to him. Yeah, fair play. Jim Lee, handsome man he is. <laughs> He's a lovely man. Once he found his style, he was a very good artist. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's not the mid-2000s or early 90s anymore. No. Uh, but, like I said, still selling. Still doing. Yeah. Anyway, so I hope that's filled the big hole in your chest, Jim, that you no doubt get whenever you listen to us <laughs> and uh, and bemoan that we, we do nothing but slag you off. We love you, really. We do. We do. That's, you know, I mean... We just love your old stuff. You don't have to keep doing more. <laughs> yeah, but his old stuff is his new stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've got to be honest, like we've said quite a few times on the show, the image bandwagon is a boat. Mixing me, me vehicle metaphors. <laughs> the image boat is one is that left me... Is it a bandwagon or is it a boat? Is it a bandwagon or is it a boat? It's a band boat. <laughs> yes, it's a, it's a band boat. Uh, the image band boat is, is one that left me on the island because that's just not where I was as a comics reader at that point. 
but I acknowledge that he of that ilk. It's a good success story. Yeah. And even that kind of ruined comics. Yeah, but they are currently the the savior of the comic industry. Yeah, images images become what but they wanted it to be. None of them include the original seven, though. No, it's all other people and other creators. Yeah. And Jim Lee don't do anything for Image anymore. Todd McFarlane doesn't. Well, he still does Spawn. Does he? Yeah. I thought he completely handed that over. I thought he wrote it. Does he still not write it? I don't know. Oh, I don't. Either. He's got McFarlane toys and has done for a while now. Eric Larson still does Savage Dragon. Yeah. Uh, nobody else does anything to the of the seven. I don't even remember who the seven were. Lee McFarlane, Larson, Potassio. Who were the others? I don't know. Who were the other three? This is how successful Sylvester image was. Oh yeah, right. Sylvester. Who were the other He's... two? He was doing Batman Black and White a while ago. Was he doing that? No idea. Yeah. No, I got a clue. Anyway, uh, I quite enjoyed that. It's quite nice to do something different. Yeah, and cleanse the palate a little bit. Before next time, an all-new episode of Hate Kids Comics, we become a Batman podcast yet again. Michael, on the last special... Taking the reins. Before we uh, before we have to adjourn for you to return yeah. for summer. Uh, return for, for autumn. Summer. Return for the autumn term. Uh, Michael's going to take over next week. It's all him. He's writing it. He's producing it. And we're going to be looking at two, <laughs> count them, two... Batman graphic novels, The Court of Owls and The City of Owls. The Night of Owls. The Night of Owls, sorry. And the we City can do of City of Owls. That's the crossover stuff. The City of Owls is volume two. Is it? Yeah. Oh, which was Night of Owls. Isn't that further down the line? No, I could have sworn The Night of Owls was the... Anyway. Anyway. That's but... what we're doing next time, which is what, the first 12 issues of Batman? Uh, 11. All right. Okay. So... Because 12 is the... Becky Cloonan issue. Right, okay, which we're not covering. We're not. We're not. All right, okay. Um, which um, will be a double-sized season finale. Do you like what I do? A season finale. A season finale, lad. <laughs> hey, up. That one foot got down foot pit. Yeah. Yeah, be right. Slap your pies on your buns and strap <laughs> in for the season that was, finale. That was a meme on first bit today. You know you're from Wigan and your answer to any problem is, be right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so next week will probably be a double-sized series season. See, we're not a TV show. It'll be a double-sized finale of a sorts. A special finale. Yeah, uh, before we have to knock it on the head until the next time that you will be home, which will probably be Christmas. Christmas. Yeah. So we'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us. Goodbye. Goodbye. Hey Kids Comics has said the devil will make work for idle hands to do production and a two true freaks presentation. The opinions of Michael and Andrew in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew in the show. Kind of in the title. Uh, Music used in the show is for review purposes only and we believe that comes under fair use. If you want to drop a few tips in our tip jar, feel free to use the Two True Freaks Amazon link, which costs you nothing, but gives us a little something to help produce content like this. Michael and Andrew are both on Twitter and on Facebook, and correspondence to the show can be sent to Hey Kids Comics at virginmedia.com. <laughs>